0: Uh, Luke chapter four is where we're going to find ourselves, uh, just as a reminder, uh, the gospel of Luke, I call it the gospel in consecutive order. It's the one that uh, uh, Luke has laid the Bible out for us or the gospel out for us in this consecutive order, which is a method that works well for our minds because the Western mind thinks more like that than we do thematically. Uh, And so uh, that's what's exciting about the gospel of Luke. Uh, I also like the Gospel of Luke because uh, it says he took the time to interview all these eyewitnesses, all these people that were there, and so he's compiling it all together for us. Um, As we work our way through this, we're in a greater, a larger study where we're going through the whole New Testament in five years. To accomplish that, we're doing one chapter every single week. Uh, which is a lot uh, when you get into the Gospels. It wasn't so bad in the smaller books like Galatians, things like that. Uh, But uh, Luke chapter 4, likely I would have preached that in three or four sermons. Uh, And we're going to get it in one today if I could ever get started. Um, So what we're going to see today in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus uh, being declared the Son of God. He's going to be declared the Anointed He's going to be declared the Holy One. He's going to be declared the Christ. But it's going to be from interesting places. From Satan and the demons. They'll call him the Son of God the Holy One, and the Christ, and then also from a prophecy uh, where we'll see him as the one who was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor and proclaim, proclaim release to the captives. and So just kind of some interesting things that we'll see through that. But as we go through that, you're going to recognize some of these key stories. Uh, we're going to see the temptation of Jesus Christ, which again, that probably would have been one sermon by itself. Uh, then you'll get to see Jesus preaching in the synagogue. You'll get to see a couple of encounters with demons. You'll get to see some physical healing. So all kinds of things that we could have covered individually. But I think as we put it all together, we can see what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to let the people who read this book know that Jesus, the one that everybody was so excited about, everybody was so concerned about, he's trying to let them know that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world that everybody was was waiting for. And I think sometimes it's helpful to take these bigger chunks, because when we look at the smaller chunks, we sometimes emphasize the wrong things. And I think that's what happens uh, uh, oftentimes in this particular chapter. So let's pick it up here in verse 1. I'll be reading this in some big chunks, and then we'll come back and and, uh, look at it. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry." And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for Him from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not stroke your, or strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So here we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This follows the baptism of Jesus. And I think that's important. Uh, First of all, as it started out here in verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And at his baptism, you saw the Spirit of God descend upon him. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, and at this point, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the concept there is that he's being led by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness. This wasn't something Jesus just said, you know, I need to drop some pounds. I'm going to take the next 40 days and just not eat. It wasn't one of those circumstances. It wasn't Jesus saying, I'm going to go to the wilderness, and I'm going to have battle. I'm going to have battle with Satan. No, this was Jesus' living like us as humans, being led by the Holy Spirit who filled him into that circumstance. That's what we're seeing happen here. This is the Spirit of God. Now understand, it's going to list out a couple of temptations that Jesus went through here. However, these aren't the only temptations, I don't believe, because it says in verse 2 that he was being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and this only covers the temptation that happens at the end of the 40 days. So I don't know what all those temptations are, but I imagine 40 days of temptation, there's a lot of stuff that Satan could come up with. And so uh, I want us to see it in that term. But the, only re- the other reason I think it's important that it follows the baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened and God said, this is my beloved son. Well, immediately after that, he's taken out into the wilderness to be tempted, and look how it is that Satan starts out tempting him in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. Do you see how that follows from the baptism? My beloved son, and Satan says, oh really? Well, if you are the Son of God, and then he brings these, these various temptations. Of course, the first one is, you've not eaten for 40 days, wouldn't you like something to eat? I mean... If you're the son of God, couldn't you just turn rocks into bread? Now, Jesus is going to answer by quoting scripture at him. He's going to quote out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live on bread alone. And so you see in this situation where Jesus is being tempted, he responds to the temptation by quoting scripture. But I just want to give you a simple understanding of, of how to respond to temptation. Anything that Satan asks you to do, don't do it, right? Even if you can, like you can turn bread if you're Jesus, you can turn uh, rocks into bread, you can do that, Jesus could have done this, but Satan's not his Lord. His Lord had led him to the wilderness to fast. Satan is trying to get him to do something in opposition to what his Lord had asked him to do. What he was led to do by the Spirit of God. And so, a general rule of thumb if Satan asks you to do it, probably you shouldn't do it. The next temptation. It says he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And now, so you can kind of look at this and ask this question. Was he physically taken somewhere where he could see all the kingdoms? Or was this some sort of vision that was given to him by Satan? I think uh, for me, in this particular instance, it looks more like it would be a vision in this particular one. uh, Because I can't think of any place where I could see There's no vantage place I could go to where I could see all the kingdoms of the earth because it's round and there's the other side, right? So uh, in that sense, I think this was probably a vision given to him. Uh, There could be some question about the next one, but in this one, I think it's a vision. And so basically what Satan is going to say to him here is that if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And he makes this claim uh, there in um, uh, verse 6 that it's actually already his This is all his earth. It's his domain, and he can hand it over. John will make a similar point, by the way, in the Gospel of John on three different occasions. John will call him the prince of this world and make the claim that he does rule this earth right now. So, what Satan's saying is he says, Look, I rule the earth right now. And I think a lot of us would probably agree with that if we just looked around. Satan says, This is mine right now, this is my domain. God's domain's up there in heaven, but this is my domain. I can put you in charge of all of this if you'll worship me instead of God. Again, Satan wants our worship. He doesn't want God to have it. Jesus responds in much the same way. He quotes scripture again, this time Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, where he says, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You can see a pattern here, by the way. In every instance, Jesus resists Satan and quotes scripture, resist Satan, and quotes scripture, and that's the way that we can respond to temptation also. Verse 9 brings us into the next temptation. Again, he's led to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, Satan's going to pull a dirty trick here. Satan's going to quote scripture at Jesus. Oh, man, this guy's getting under my skin. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12, which in fact is a messianic psalm. But Jesus is going to respond to this in the same way he does to the others. He's going to quote, again, out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 16. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this temptation is an interesting one to me. Uh, First of all, was he physically taken to Jerusalem? Some would say this was another vision. I tend to think that in some way he was taken there physically because when I look at the temptation that he's giving Jesus here, uh, the temptation is first to test God, but that test has no meaning if it has no consequence. What Satan wants him to do is to jump off the highest point of the temple, the end result of which would be suicide. Satan is tempting Jesus here with suicide. He's tempting Jesus to test God's word in this way. And I think it's something that Satan still uses today. I think he tests us all the time. He, He puts us in these situations and circumstances. And he basically makes you ask the question, well, if God really loved me, wouldn't he take care of this? And wouldn't he take away this? And wouldn't he do this? Uh, These are temptations that are brought by Satan, designed to distract us from the love that God has for us. Well, ultimately, after these temptations, it says when the devil had finished every temptation, I think that's an important word, every temptation. I think Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are. And so in that, he can identify with us in every temptation we have. But in that, he then says that the devil left looking for an opportune time. In other words, Satan's going to continue to tempt Jesus, and he's just looking for the right time. And again, that's the way Satan works. He's always looking for the great opportunity. And sometimes we make that a little bit too easy for him by giving him options and opportunities. Uh, I want to point out something Here though, before we look at the practical implications of that, on two different occasions in verse 3 and verse 9, Satan says, if you are the Son of God. Uh, Now this phrase, Son of God, is important in the Gospel of Luke. You'll see it's repeated over and over in the first four chapters. It won't come up again, by the way, until the end when the Pharisees, at the trial of Jesus, when he's getting ready to be sacrificed or crucified, uh, the Pharisees will come back at him and say are you the son of God? And at that moment, Jesus will answer, yes, I am. But in between there, we're actually seeing him live as the son of God. But there's actually an interesting connection there to a messianic thing in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David, Solomon, is being, or David is being told that his son Solomon will be like a son of to God. He'll treat him like a son. But in that conversation, suddenly God changes it from talking just about Solomon to be talking now about an eternal son going forward. It's a messianic push through. It's an, a messianic foreshadowing that you see. And so this phrase son of God coming up over and over again in the beginning of the book of Luke is intentional by Luke. He, he wants the Jews in particular to recognize that Jesus is the son of God because he was conceived by God, or as we saw last week, because the forerunner, John the Baptist, said in fact that he was, or because God himself spoke that he was the son of God. And even Satan is challenging this. If you are the son of God, it's important. These titles, these names that are assigned to Jesus are important. It asks the question, who is Jesus? It's a question we all had to answer for ourselves at some point. Maybe some of you haven't answered that question for yourself yet. But you have to do something with Jesus. And the claim of scripture is that he's something more than just your average teacher just your average prophet, just your average Jewish guy, right? He is the Son of God, which is important. Now, I want to talk just briefly about temptation. A couple of things to keep in mind. We've talked a lot about what Satan does. We've talked a little bit about how we can respond. Number one, resist Satan. He'll flee you. Number two, resist. Use the word against him. Even if you only know one verse, just say that one to him over and over and over again, right? Just like, no, you're Satan. You don't get to hear what, you don't get to tell me what to do. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And preach the gospel at Satan if that's what you have to do. But resist him and go to the scripture. But I also want to tell you a couple other things about, or about temptation that I think are important. Uh, number one, being tempted itself is not sin, The evidence is that Jesus was tempted. You could also look at the book of James. In James chapter 1 it it says uh, that that everyone is tempted but it doesn't become sin until it conceives and gives birth. Until you act upon that temptation. When that lust conceives. And that's a, a key thing to understand there. That Satan is always looking for an opportune time and he's looking for the things that he knows you desire that are sinful. And he'll use the Age-old classics, sex, drugs, rock and roll, money for nothing, chicks for free, all the good stuff, right? <laughs> he knows, he's, a, a, he's been watching humans, he understands how we work, and he'll look for those things and those opportunities, and he'll use those against you, but understand that the fact that he's tempting you is not a sign that you're sinful. The fact that you've been tempted does not make you a sinner. It's when you take action on that temptation. Another thing that I think is important is to understand that in every temptation, there's actually a way of escape. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful and will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in the t- temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. So you can withstand it. That's encouraging when you're being tempted to know that there's a way of escape. Oftentimes the way of escape is just leave, right? Wherever the temptation is, get away from it. Just walk away. If you're tempted by your computer, just stand up and walk away. Turn it off. If your temptation is alcohol, probably stay away from the bars, right? Just walk away. Somebody says, hey, would you like a drink? I'm not saying any of this is easy. I'm just saying there is a way of escape provided for you, and that's just walk away. Just walk away. Just plan to walk away. It's also a little bit discouraging for me personally because I think of all the times that I actually stepped into temptation And then into sin, realizing that I didn't have to, that I chose to. It's a great reminder that I, in fact, need a Savior. All right. So Jesus, now it says in verse 14, is going to return to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, which is natural when God speaks from heaven about somebody. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been uh, brought up, and was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "'Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.' And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words, which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, "'Is this not Joseph's son?' So Jesus now is going to leave his scene of his baptism. He's going to go to Galilee. Let me just give you a visual picture of Israel because sometimes these these places kind of get lost on us. Uh, Israel is tall and skinny. Uh, On the uh, uh, east side of Israel, you'll find uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. That's kind of one barrier on the east side. On the west side you will find the the Mediterranean Sea, right? And so it's just kind of this long, skiddy thing. And it's roughly divided into three areas. You have Galilee, uh, Samaria, and Judea. And so he was down in Judea likely for his baptism, but he goes back up to Galilee, which is the region that he grew up in, And you'll find in Galilee, uh, at the southern part of Galilee, right before you get into Samaria, you'll see the city of Nazareth. That's the city he grew up in. But at the top of the Dead Sea, you're going to find Capernaum, which we're going to visit here uh, in a few minutes. But he starts out by preaching in the synagogues in the area of Galilee. So it wasn't just in one synagogue. He was going from city to city, teaching in the synagogues. Uh, And everybody is just astounded by everything that he's saying. It's beginning to spread the news about him. Everybody's excited about him. But he eventually goes back home to Nazareth. He's going to enter into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, Maybe you don't know what a synagogue is. For the Jewish people to worship God, they had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And there were set times throughout the year that they would go there. But in the in-between times, when they weren't in Jerusalem, they had local gathering places. And uh, the the tradition is any city that had more than 10 Jews would form a synagogue. And it kind of became a a learning and community center for them. And they had some very specific patterns where they would read different portions of the Old Testament at each gathering on Sabbath, on Saturday. They would read these different portions and then they would have uh, potentially a, a rabbi or somebody, a teacher, teach a little bit about that. But there was all of this kind of wrapped into that. Jesus was in the habit of going to the synagogue on Sabbath day because he was, in fact, Jewish. Uh, And so as he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, when he gets there, uh, he enters into the synagogue on this particular day, and he stands up to read. He wants the opportunity to speak to his own church, to the synagogue that he maybe even grew up in. And so they hand him uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah. Again, what they would do is each uh, week... They would read from different portions, and so there would be a reading from the Old Testament law, there would be a reading from the prophets, and maybe from the Psalms or something like that, but they would just divide it up into these various reading sections, and they would have different people just read through the passage. You know, you know when Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading of the word, uh, that's one of the things that was just a habit of theirs, and I, th- I think I think that we probably could do a little better at, by the way, I think I read through the passage as I preach it, uh, but I actually think it would be a cool element uh, to maybe add to the service someday that we just together are working through the Bible in different ways. You know, maybe just every Sunday just take uh, half a chapter or something out of the Psalms or something like that, but just kind of adding something like that to the Word, but, uh, to what we're doing in teaching of the Word right now. But anyway, so Jesus stands up, they hand him the prophet Isaiah, my assumption is, and this really is an assumption, that it was already open to the section they wanted him to read, that this was just the next section because they're just making a habit of reading through it, right? And so it was already probably open to that section. Now, although some people think that he may have turned to that section. That wouldn't have been easy. Just so you know the, the way these scrolls were. Uh, if you imagine the book of Isaiah laid out on a scroll, the, the predictions I saw or the estimations I saw is that it would be a 28-foot-long piece of paper rolled up. And so could you imagine Jesus, give me a minute here, just, gotta, just a second, I'm just going just to turn to the right, just got to roll this scroll all the way to the right. Particular. I, I think it was actually the, the next spot that they were supposed to read. I think this is all uh, God's planning and God's purpose. But anyway, when Jesus stands up, he reads to them Isaiah 61, verses one and two. It's this kind of beautiful picture to think of Jesus announcing himself to his own hometown that he is the expected Messiah as he reads this messianic portion. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he sits down and everybody's looking at him and he says, today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilled in your hearing. He's claiming that he is the one who was anointed by God to preach the gospel to the world. He makes this claim in his own synagogue, in his own hometown. And the people weren't offended by this at all. In fact, they were wondering about it, but they were speaking well of him. They thought these were very gracious words. Uh, They were a little confused because this was Joseph's son, right? Like we saw this kid grow up, right? Like, what do you you mean? You're the guy that Isaiah was talking about. But they're still so impressed by what he has to say at this point uh, that they're speaking well of him. Well, Jesus is now going to teach them a little bit, and it's not going to go as well. Uh, Jesus is going to bring a confrontation to them. Uh, It's somewhat of a prophetic one, uh, but he says this in verse 23. He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Well, first of all, I have never preached a sermon that had that bad of a reaction. (laughs) That Jesus... Tells them essentially, I'm about to go to Capernaum and I'm going to do some pretty amazing things. But honestly, I can't do any of those things here. And then he gives some biblical illustrations, and I think it's the biblical illustrations that really offended the people. I think a little bit they were thinking to themselves, wait, this is your hometown. You should be doing that amazing stuff here, not everywhere else. But his biblical illustrations would be really impactful to a Jewish person. Uh, he talks first about Elijah. Uh, well, Elijah helps this uh, widow, right? He helps this widow, Zarephath. But what's interesting about the widow is that she's not Jewish, she's from Sidon. And Jesus makes the point, there were lots of widows in Israel at that time, lots of Judean widows, Jews. There were lots of them. But God, through Elijah, chose not to help them. He chose this Gentile widow to help. And then he says... There were lots of lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha. That's the prophet that came after Elijah, Elisha. But none of them were cleansed. Instead, he cleansed Naaman, a guy from Syria, a Syrian guy, again a non-Jew. And when they hear that, that's when the people are filled with rage because they saw themselves as special people in the eyes of God which they were, but they assumed because of that, they were the only ones that God cared about. And it was offensive to them that God would care about somebody else, at least in their eyes, more than them, enough to help when he wouldn't help them. It was offensive to them. And they began to become filled with rage, so much so that they wanted to push Jesus off a cliff. They drove him out of town. They drove him out of town. Can you imagine them chasing Jesus out of town? Could you imagine service ending like that on a Sunday? Chasing the pastor out of town. Not since Joseph Smith has that happened. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> they did. They chased him out of town. They tarred and feathered him. I'm just saying. <laughs> chasing him out of town, drive him to the edge of a cliff to push him off. Again, they want to kill him because of what he said here. And it doesn't give a whole lot of explanation. It just says Jesus passed through their midst and went his way, which is, this is where I kind of like superhero Jesus this, like the things he could do were pretty cool, right? He was, in fact, the son of God. He was, in fact, part of the Trinity. Jesus was God. And so he's just able to slip through the crowd. Now, some people have taken this and said, well, it's because he was just like everybody else. He he was just so normal in the way that he looked. And I think that's true. And he would have looked very Jewish. He would have looked just like the people around him. But not so much so that they wouldn't have recognized him walking through their crowd when they wanted to put him to death. They would have known it was him. Uh, Something amazing happened there. Somehow he slips through their midst and just went away. And where he goes is he's going to go to Capernaum. In verse 31, a city of Galilee. Again, I told you Galilee was the northern portion of Israel. At the top of the Dead Sea is the city Capernaum. Uh, He, did I get that right? The Sea of Galilee, the top of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. The Dead Sea is down here. The top of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, this city up there. Uh, Anyway, he came down to Capernaum, just like he told the people he would, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice let us alone what business do you have with each other, do we have with each other jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm to him. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another saying, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality In the surrounding district. And so now we're going to see Jesus again in the city of Capernaum, goes into the synagogue again the Sabbath. This was his habit, this was his custom. He would go in and he would teach, and once again the people were just amazed at the way he taught. He taught with an authority they hadn't had before. Uh, Typically, what you would have seen in that time, this is what commentaries tell me, I wasn't around back then, but the commentaries tell me that during that time, what you would typically see is the local rabbi would stand up and he would speak, but he really wouldn't speak for himself. Uh, What he would do is he would say, say, well, this rabbi, and he would quote a conservative rabbi, says this about this passage, and then this rabbi, and he would quote a liberal uh, rabbi, and say, this is what this guy says about it, and just kind of just like, I would would call it wishy-washy. I would just say, they they weren't really making a a strong claim, they were kind of presenting it out here like this, and just saying, you know, these are what these two very famous rabbis once said about this passage. It would be like if I came here every Sunday, and every Sunday said, well, look, you know, John MacArthur very conservative, says this. But Rob Bell, very liberal, says this. Well, you guys will figure it out, right? That was kind of the idea. They just weren't used to somebody coming in and preaching with authority. They weren't used to that. Jesus came in and spoke as if he knew the scriptures. And they were just blown away by this. But this odd thing happens at the synagogue one day. Just happens to be a demon-possessed guy in the synagogue. I would like to say this, demon-possessed people can come to church. Now, I don't talk a whole lot about demons except when it comes up in Scripture, and I actually don't give a whole lot of thought to the concept on a regular basis. But I do think we have to be careful to not exclude that from our mental theology. We, we might just kind of attest, yes, yes, we see a lot of demonic things in the Bible. We don't see as much of that today Well, I think we like to assign scientific reasons for things and reject spiritual reasons for things. And so I do think there are times that there are things that are demonic that we try to label as other things. I think we have to be cautious of that. I also would point out in the presence of Jesus Christ, the demon could not sit still in church. I'm not saying if you can't sit still in church that you're filled with a demon. You might just be like an American who can't sit for 45 minutes. That's just normal. That's why sitcoms are 30 minutes with breaks throughout. Like, Shouldn't church have commercials right in the middle of every sermon just so you can pay attention? That's what all my little jokes are, just to draw your attention back in. But anyway, this demon stands up and says, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other? And the demon knows who he is, Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knew who he was at this point. It's said that his popularity was growing throughout the region. Uh, the demon asks a question, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon recognized him as the Holy One of God. Now that would be a messianic title, but I think even more powerful than that. Every other instance of the phrase Holy One in the Old Testament, every single one of them is addressed to God, the Holy One. Now, I think it is true that God set apart, that's what holy means, set Jesus apart for his particular use. But I think this phrase, this term, I think is intentional. Again, I think it's, it's messianic. I think Luke's point is to remind everybody who reads this book that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Anointed One. He was the Holy One. That Jesus was both Savior and God. Well, Jesus immediately rebukes him, tells him to be quiet and to get out of the guy. The guy gets thrown to the ground by the demon. The demon comes out of him and the people are like, Best sermon ever! Sunday was so awesome. What happened at your synagogue last weekend? Oh, you read Isaiah again? We've read that one before. We saw a demon get cast out. Like these people were like amazed by this. What is this message, this authority, this power? He commands unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading again into every locality in the surrounding district. That Jesus is rising in popularity temporarily. (laughs) It won't go on forever. There will be those who will oppose Jesus. And then we'll finish it up here with some physical healings and another set of demon possessions. In verse 38, Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, with various diseases, brought them to him. And laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues, and it says in my version here of Judea, some might actually say uh, Galilee and some will... Um, yeah, Judea and Galilee, I think, are the two translations there. But uh, but, but, I, but I want you to see kind of something that happened here. Jesus first is going to heal Simon's mother-in-law, and we could spend a lot of time about how the first pope was married. I don't want to get into that today, but uh, here in Matthew, in Mark, 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that Peter was in fact married, and I think there's uh, some, a whole bunch of stuff you could say about that, but I'm not going to. Uh, but anyway, he, he rebukes the fever from Simon's mother-in-law, and her response is to immediately get up and begin to serve him. And then from that, the word is spread. Now he's healing people, and the crowds just start to come to him. And at Simon's mother-in-law's house, I guess, or no, Simon's home, uh, it's nighttime in verse 40. It says, while the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he was healing them, laying hands on each one of them, healing them, casting out demons. Now catch this. It tells us in verse 42, when day came. In other words, he did this all night long. He did this. Healing and healing and healing and casting out demons. Well, again, we have the demons saying something interesting about Jesus in verse 41. Demons also were coming out of many, and they were shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. And so here again, we're applying these messianic titles. You are the Son of God, which we covered earlier. And they knew him to be the Christ. Well, Christ is a transliteration of a Greek word that means the anointed one, anointed. Here Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism for the purpose of preaching the gospel as prophesied in the book of Isaiah, is being recognized as the Christ by these demons. And you would think in this moment that Jesus would say, keep on preaching, demons, That's who I am. But he doesn't. He silences them. He rebukes them. He doesn't want them to say these things. A couple of reasons have been postulated, uh, and I think both are pretty valid. One was, it wasn't his time to be crucified yet, and so it wasn't quite time for everything to be made this obvious. Uh, But again, I would say probably more important than that, we don't need Satan to preach the gospel to us. And again, If Satan tells me something, that's not where I want to get my news. And yes, Satan can even quote scripture and know the truth. But he's not what I would call a reliable source. Jesus wanted people to see him. Hear him. And hear the good news that was proclaimed by God. He didn't want them to say... In their testimony, how were you led to Christ? Well, this demon told me all about him. In fact, that's going to be a problem in Jesus' ministry later on. The Pharisees are going to accuse him of working his miracles by demonic power, by the power of Satan himself. Of course, it's not true. But Jesus had to balance all of those different things in this, and so he silences them. But still, it's becoming more and more obvious who he was as he proclaims and preaches With power. And so he heals them all through the night. And they don't even want him to leave town. They want him to stay there. But he has this mission. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. He understood what his purpose was. And so he kept on preaching in the synagogues. And it uh, it seems like he was in various areas doing this. But this was his ministry as long as the synagogues would have him. He would go and he would preach and he would preach and he would preach. Again, lots of things that you could pull out of this. We could deal with temptation. We could deal with the demonic. We could deal with prophecy. Uh, we could deal with healing or not healing. Again, as, as uh, Jesus said to the, the church that, you know, God could have healed all the widows in Jerusalem, but he picked one who was in Sidon. And he could have healed all the lepers in Israel, but he picked one who was a Syrian. For whatever reason God does the things that he does, don't let it enrage you. There's all kinds of things we could say about this passage, but I think what Luke is clearly trying to show us is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the anointed one, the Christ. Whenever you read Jesus Christ, you know he was anointed by God. That's a picture, an image of pouring oil. That is the picture of the Holy Spirit, something they would do with their kings, with their priests in the Old Testament, the high priest. They would pour oil over their heads, anointed by God. He is the Holy One of God. And so the question we always have to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus to us? He's all of those things and more. He is the Son of God. He is the Anointed One. He is the Holy One. He is the Christ. Uh, The simplest way I'd like to say it is, He is my Lord and He is my God. That's who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And because He's my Lord and because He's my God, I know that I have eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Do you know that for yourself? Can you say with me, He is my Lord and He is my God. He is my Lord and He is my God. He is my Lord and He is my God. If you can say that, today salvation has come to you. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I go through these chapters each week. I start the week in ignorance and in worry and wondering. And then as I study it out, your word is faithful. Your word is true. Your your word always reveals things about you to us. Today, Lord, I would pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be revealed to all in this room. Father, for those of us who already knew him, uh, that we would be reinforced in that belief. Uh, for those who don't know him, who've never confessed him as Lord, that today might be the day where that becomes true for them. And Lord, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would take these side teachings, temptation, and the demonic, the healing, I Speak to people's hearts the things you would have said to them today. Oh, Lord, we just want to praise you. We just want to give thanks to you that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, and that through him we have victory. Father, we thank you, we love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.